This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor. And me, Sarah Seggi. This week, we're going to take an in-depth look at an important issue that many of you have written to us about over the years. The gender bias in healthcare is pervasive. And it's not only an issue of equity, it causes untold harm. It sees women receiving worse treatments during a heart attack, being denied proper pain relief when in pain, and in other instances, less likely to get critical interventions. Historically, women have been excluded or underrepresented in research, or the way research has been organised has been biased towards males. It leads to poorer care for women and it's a huge problem. So to help us understand these issues more, we're joined by Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Melbourne and at the Royal Women's Hospital, Martha Hickey, who's been lobbying on this topic for many years now. Welcome. Thank you. And Professor Robin Norton, Principal Director of the George Institute for Global Health. And she's also a Professor of Public Health at the University of New South Wales and at the Imperial College in London. She's a world leader in clinical trials and also an advocate for change. Welcome. Thank you. Robin, let's start with you. Are you able to describe this gender bias and where does it come from? I think the the first issue we need to discuss here is the exclusion for many years of women from medical research. And indeed, it extends to animals, female animals, and indeed female cells. The exclusion of women from research has is a historical issue. Um, but then more recently, as we've started to include more women in trials um, and in research studies, we're so, still seeing that data are not being disaggregated and examined separately for men and women. Martha, are you able to tell me a little bit more about what, what is this issue of having um, a lack of research on, on the cells of female animals? What, what's the problem there? Well, I think it was presumed for a long time that there was no difference and it didn't really matter. Uh, from the cell line work. Uh, in the animal work, which is mostly in rodents, sometimes they choose female mice because they're less aggressive than male mice and easier to work with. So there are slightly sort of random reasons like that that have underpinned some of these issues. I don't think anybody has been specifically trying to exclude women in the preclinical work. And in the clinical work, there have been some issues about safety in women. But ultimately, if we're going to collect our data from males or from men, and then we're going to apply them to everybody and specifically to women, then there's a risk of the wrong information being applied to women and then women being harmed by that. And I think COVID has been a great example of this. The issues around vaccination of women, for ex- of pregnant women, for example, uh, which have taken considerable advocacy, some of which has been from Australia to ensure that pregnant women were included uh, in those trials. Do women die because of the the gender bias in, in medicine and health? What's the harm? Perhaps the most extreme example and one that I often quote is research that was published a couple of years ago in the UK which compared women with a heart attack and men with a heart attack and looked at the extent to which both men and women were being treated according to guidelines. Women were less likely to be treated according to those guidelines compared with men. And it was estimated that over a 10-year period, at least 8,000 women 
were likely to have died because they were not receiving the guideline-based care. So that's a very extreme example, but I think highlights the issue. Martha, that's a pretty breathtaking example that Robin's just given. Are there other examples that you've seen where gender bias or a lack of research in women has led to women not getting proper care? I think we have a fundamental problem with the concept of what a human is, which is a human is a man. And certainly as as medical students, that's what we're taught. And most things are based around the concept of a 70 kilo man. That would be a white man. So once we start having things that only affect women, like menstruation or pregnancy or menopause, those become aberrations from the norm and hence become pathologized and medicalized. So there is a huge amount of harm potentially from doing that, from turning normal physical factors or experiences in women into illnesses. And of course, we should make the distinction here between gender and sex. And really, they're both relevant because there's discrimination or there's uh, inequity in the way people are treated because of the way the gender that they present. But there's also biological factors at play here. Yes, that's right. And I think just to go back a step about, uh, as Robin was just discussing, the under-inclusion of, of, of females at all stages of research. For humans, for, for clinical research, one of the reasons for exclusion of women was because of thal- thalidomide and the possibility that drugs given to women might be teratogenic or might harm the fetus. That was many, many years ago. But if we then take this issue about women being an aberration and exclude women because they're menstruating or not menstruating or taking hormonal contraceptives or pregnant or have just been pregnant or menopausal, you end up excluding everybody. Right. And Robin, you mentioned animal research and even cells before. Is this something that people are trying to take steps to change? Oh, absolutely. No, it is changing. I think there's greater recognition. And so the National Institutes of Health in in the US has led changes in this direction. Also, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. And it's something that Australia in a general sense, has been lagging behind. And we really need to to work with colleagues in Australia across the spectrum from basic research through to animal research, through to human research to ensure that this has changed. So let's hear now a personal story of how gender bias in medicine can cause harm and suffering for women. Chronic pain. Research shows women in pain are less likely to get timely or adequate treatment in hospitals. Meanwhile, the majority of pain studies are conducted on male mice or on human men. Here's Sarah Fowler. She's lived with chronic pain from a young age. I've been dealing with chronic pain since about the age of 10, maybe even earlier. I was diagnosed with chronic regional pain syndrome. Basically, that means that my body was sending pain signals when there was no injury It often means that my pain signals are heightened or I might feel weird sensations like burning or tingling. And it's real pain. It just, there's no cause for the pain. I'm so used to ignoring pain signals that sometimes real pain and real injuries I can ignore when I probably shouldn't. I had in year five in my first major flare-up, which was really scary for me. They would just tell me that I was, yeah, it was in my head and I was just being sort of dramatic as such. There was a lot of times where, and I've noticed as I get older, the same sorts of things where hysteria and being dramatic and being unable to handle pain was something that I was told I couldn't handle pain, but 
my male friends in the same age bracket would be believed much more quickly. I found myself having to convince a lot of doctors, and not only that, but a lot of people. I guess there's just this belief that people grow up with that women can't handle as much as men can. We are half the population, and I think women and men have different medical problems, and that's that's really valid, and it needs to be investigated for both men and women. That's Sarah Fowler, who's lived with chronic pain since she was a child. Autism spectrum disorder is a developmental condition that is said to be more prevalent in boys. But the possibility exists that this is also an example of gender bias because spectrum disorders like autism and ADHD have different symptom patterns in boys than in girls, which make boys stand out more. For example, researchers think girls seem to be better at masking their symptoms to fit in more. It can be frustrating for parents who know their girls need more support or for women who don't get a diagnosis until later in adulthood, like Barb Cook. She was nearly 40 when she finally found out that she has autism spectrum disorder. Sarah spoke to her earlier. I found it very difficult at times and didn't really understand what was going on. I thought that there was, as I got older, that there was something quite wrong with my mental health. I was diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 19, and... I had anxiety and I had multiple misdiagnoses through my life, uh, including social phobia, bipolar disorder. And eventually, um, it wasn't until my late 30s that I actually ended up with the diagnosis of the autism, ADHD and dyslexia. How were you finally able to get the right diagnosis? Getting the right diagnosis came about after becoming very burnt out and hitting a breakdown. At that point in my life, I was um, struggling very difficultly with work. I had many lost jobs. I had broken relationships and friendships. And I'd gotten to a point where I'd actually felt like I'd lost a lot of hope in what my life was about and in some terms had given up in ever being able to understand or fit into society. And it was during this time of my breakdown and after having an accident in a hospital, I got referred to a psychologist that was the starting point of going down the pathway of eventually getting a correct diagnosis after many more talks about what was going on in my life and having somebody that could actually understand me. So my finally, when my diagnosis came about, was through a professional who was a psychiatrist that actually understood autism and ADHD in adults and more so in women. What difference did having the right diagnosis make for you? Getting the right diagnosis completely changed my life. It made a lot of sense where all the other diagnoses, I related to a tiny part of them. And getting the correct diagnosis made the sense of why I was anxious, why I had depression as well, because of the case that I was different to other people around me. And once I started to learn more about myself and learn about what autism was, it opened up opportunities for me to change how my life was. When you were getting the wrong information from the health system, how did you feel walking away from those appointments? Those continual misdiagnoses actually added to the sense of despair. So for me, it kept feeling like, well, there is something wrong with me. I am broken. There is no fixing who I am. 
and when I got the diagnosis of my autism, ADHD and dyslexia, it turned that around. I wasn't broken. I was just different. I looked at the world differently. I felt the world differently, especially through my sensory profile, which I had no idea of, that I had heightened senses around sound and light, which were also impacting on my overwhelm and how I felt. Why do you think it took so long for you to get a diagnosis? It took so long to get a diagnosis, and this also happens with lots of women. There isn't still a great deal of understanding about autism in women. When I got diagnosed in 2009, looking for literature um, about autism and uh, female experiences, there was still even very limited information there. So if there's limited information out there for the general public, uh, there's obviously limited information and bias within the medical system as well because research has predominantly been about boys. Girls are very different. We're very good at masking. We're very good at hiding who we are. So people tend to think, okay, they've got anxiety, they've got depression, but these are things that come from masking the autism and the differences in who we are. That's Barb Cook sharing her story. You're listening to RN's Health Report. I'm Sarah Seggi. And I'm Tegan Taylor. This week is a special episode on the gender gap in medicine. So, Robin, from where I sit, these stories don't seem to be uncommon. Is that your experience? Absolutely. And I'm just picking up on the last comments made by Barb about the time to diagnosis. This has been shown, firstly, in the cardiovascular field, but just in the last um, couple of months, there was a publication that came out in Nature which analysed data um, from Danish populations over a 21-year period and showed that women were diagnosed later than men in more than 700 diseases. So what she's experiencing here is something that we're seeing in a whole lot of areas and why that is really requires further investigation. For me, training as a gynaecologist, uh, we were taught that women were unreliable historians, meaning that you couldn't necessarily believe what they were saying. One of the consequences of that has been for a common condition, for example, such as heavy menstrual bleeding, where what the woman described wasn't the diagnostic criteria. So the diagnosis, and this is a case for several conditions in women, on so-called objective criteria rather than on what the woman says. And the fundamental basis of that is that the woman can't be expected to necessarily report things accurately. Martha, please tell me that advice is still not being given out in medical school today. Due to the advocacy of some fantastic people around the world, we now have heavy menstrual bleeding diagnosed as what the woman says. Martha, we were speaking a moment ago about the historical and structural issues that have contributed to this gender bias. What have the implications been? Are you able to give examples on what it's meant for understanding drug dosages or side effects of medicines in in women or, or, or even just understanding how well drugs work in women? I think, as Robin said, there's been a start. So the NHMRC, for example, that's our major government funding body, now indicate that you have to have equal numbers of males and females in your research uh, unless you're studying something which only applies to one or the other. But there's no extra funding available for doing that work. In terms of drugs, I think we just haven't even started yet. Yeah. Robin? So just, just Martha, I think absolutely right with NH and MRC. I think they're leading the way in Australia. But some of the work we're currently doing at the moment is reaching out not just to the funding agencies, which are important, 
reaching out to what's happening in medical journals, what's happening in the training. And I think we are finding that there's still a very much a lack of understanding of the importance, not so much of including women in studies and research, but disaggregation of data is still not routine. So there's still a long way to go if we're going to change the way people think about what is best practice medicine. I think we've got a long way to go in Australia yet. Understanding the differences between men and women is the easiest form of precision medicine, which I think many people would recognise we need to move towards. That's right. And back to what you were saying, Martha, about the recognition of heavy menstrual bleeding, have added the attitudes of doctors and nurses in the clinical setting. Has that changed much overall from, you know, from what it was previously when when you were training? Look, that's a long time ago. And fortunately, things have moved on. But one of the big changes has been the increased number of women who are who are providers of care. And just to make the point, um, when we're thinking about uh, health, sex differences in health, is there's a growing body of evidence that women as doctors provide better care, meaning that they provide more evidence-based care, their surgical complication rate is lower, and their um, likelihood of following evidence-based protocols in, in an emergency setting is higher. So that's just turning things around. We've got more women doctors, still not enough at senior levels, but our healthcare is improving because of that. Well, one area where there seems to be a lot of research lacking in women is exercise science. You may be wondering why that matters, but let's take, for example, concussion in sport. There are differences in how men and women experience concussion, and it's critical that we understand these differences if we're going to keep athletes safe. Dr Mandy Hagstrom is an exercise scientist from the University of New South Wales and one of this year's ABC Top 5 Scientists. So my research looks at the different ways that males and females respond to exercise. And I did it because I was trying to train myself and a lot of the literature I found just didn't relate to me. So I wanted to know, you know, am I different and would I respond differently? So you as a sports person and you felt like there wasn't what you needed to to get the best performance from yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Me as a sports person. The majority of the literature still focuses on men. So a recent analysis from our team in a small subset area demonstrated that male participants outnumbered females on a ratio of five to one. So there were 400 males and only 80 females. So it's really hard for us to understand what's going on when we don't have the data. People differ in a lot of different ways. Why is sex or gender, and we can get to that in a second, a factor that should be representative? Well, we're biologically different. So there's some obvious ones. For example, stature, males are bigger. Because they're bigger, they've got more overall muscle mass and they've got bigger lungs. So things like that make sense that they would influence exercise capacity. But there are things that are less obvious as well. So women tend to take longer to recover from muscle damaging exercise. And women also appear to have less fatigable skeletal muscle. So things that we can't see actually affect how we should be prescribing exercise. What do we know about how um, sex hormones interact with exercise? We know a bit. The more we know, the more we realise we probably don't know. So for years, it was thought that testosterone was, you know, the biggest driver of muscle growth. And now we actually know that that's not, in fact, the case. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done, particularly in female or women's hormones across the lifespan. So we know very little about what happens with menopause and how the hormones will influence things like muscle growth. And we know very 
little about hormone replacement therapy and how it will affect muscle growth. So some of the other things that we've discussed on the health report before have been around, you know, women are more likely to die from a heart attack than a man because they're not well understood. Why is exercise science, which generally isn't a life or death thing, why is this an important place to put research effort? Good question. So it's not imminent life or death, but exercise does contribute to quality of life and also mortality. So it's fundamentally important because our health and well-being and mental as well as physical is influenced by exercise and how we perform that exercise. So if we only understand how exercise influences the male body and male health, we're potentially missing some really important things that could improve females' quality of life. Conversely, understanding the the female um, adaptations or the female response more will also help us improve our understanding of prescribing exercise for males. So it's a win-win situation. Are there harms that have come out for women because of this lack of understanding? Yeah. So there's some really fascinating research that's kind of has only come out in the last few weeks and few months, and it's around concussion in women. And it's really fascinating because concussion in a sport context had historically been studied in men because of sports such as rugby and rugby league, contact sports being predominantly participated in by a male audience. But we know the female participation in these sports or or women participation is growing rapidly. And what has been shown is that the mechanisms of concussion in males and females differ. So the way that we can prevent concussion might not be the same between sexes. That's Dr Mandy Hagstrom, exercise scientist from the University of New South Wales. We're joined by a Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Melbourne and at the Royal Women's Hospital, Martha Hickey, and as well as Professor Robin Norton, who's the Principal Director at the George Institute for Global Health and is also with the University of New South Wales. So as we've heard, Mandy just spoke about an area of research where the data on women is simply just lacking. Martha, are there any other examples you can think of? Look, I think most areas of health really have not been explored adequately for the the sex differences that they might have. And then gender differences is a whole other area that really we've, I think we've hardly even started to look into. So I think most systems in our bodies differ between males and females from a cell level all the way up through to clinical research. Robin, did you did you want to add anything about that? I think an important issue that we should consider is the funding that's available for research on um, conditions that particularly affect women compared to those that particularly affect men. Again, some recent research that's just been published has shown that in nearly three quarters of the cases of NIH funding over the last few years, where a disease primarily affects one gender, then it's more likely the funding pattern favours males and that if a disease affects women, more women, it's more likely to be underfunded or if the disease affects more men, it's more likely to be overfunded. So I think this is something that we need to explore further and see whether indeed this is the case also in Australia. And we know that there are some really complex conditions that disproportionately affect women, such as Alzheimer's disease, autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis. You mentioned there the the funding issue, but also you also were speaking before about precision medicine. Are, Are these biological sex differences something that we need to understand better to achieve precision medicine and, you know, really get the best options for women's care? 
Absolutely. And I think it comes back to some of the issues you were raising before about the differential effects of some pharmaceuticals on women compared to women. And Martha alluded to this before. We do need to understand this more precisely. So again, recent research that's just been published in the last couple of months has shown very clearly that women experience adverse drug reactions nearly twice as often as men, yet the role of sex as a biological factor in the generation of adverse drug reactions is poorly understood. So that's drugs. What about medical devices, Robin? Well, medical devices generally is an area which is, is, is if you like, poorly examined. The, the testing that's required for medical devices is nowhere near as stringent as the testing that we'd use for pharmaceuticals. And I think there have been a number of examples where medical devices have been shown to pose greater risks for women compared to men. Um, which devices? Well, one example is that the majority of artificial hearts are made in a standard size, which is too large for many women. Another example that um, colleagues at Macquarie University have recently published and spoken about is the issue of hip implants, twice as likely to fail in women compared to men. Martha? Yeah, really interesting. Um, Just to sort of stand back again from this and say that science is only as good as the question that you ask. And what guides the question will be your sex and your gender, amongst other things. As a researcher, women ask different questions than men. And the issues that Robin is just raising, I completely agree with, around funding, for example, we need to have more women at a senior level who are asking the questions and who also who are assessing the grants and allocating the funding because that will help us to get around this issue of differential funding towards um, conditions that affect men. So we're really hearing that there's a lack of consideration for sex and gender that is limiting our understanding of how women experience illness and injury and not having that complete picture can have huge implications. So let, let's actually talk about what's being done to fix the problems and what should be done. Robin, is it as simple as just having more women in research or is there more that needs to be done at that research level to correct this gap? I think certainly having more women at senior levels is going to be very important. But a major piece of work that we and many others in the country are working on it is really looking at the policies that we have across the medical research pipeline in terms of is it a requirement or are people encouraged or is there training to ensure that research is undertaken such that appropriate numbers of men and women are included in research, but then data are analysed and reported separately for men and women. So we start to understand the biological and the gender factors that play important roles in health outcomes. What about at the clinician level, Martha? I think that It's clear that at a clinician level that women are disadvantaged when it comes to the kind of conditions that affect both men and women because we just don't have the understanding or the knowledge base to know how women might present differently with their condition and respond to treatment. Martha, what advice would you give to women who've seen a doctor, maybe several doctors or healthcare workers, and feel like they're not being heard? I think change your doctor. 
would we one piece of advice? <laughs> Uh, so, for example, uh, in my area of work, which is in menopause, we have a registry of all the doctors, GPs, who have an interest in menopause. And I would quite regularly direct a patient to somebody in their area who has a declared interest in their, in women's health. Well, thank you very much to, to both of you for joining us today. So, uh, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology, Martha Hickey. She's uh, at the University of Melbourne, as well as the Royal Women's Hospital and Professor Robin Norton, who's a Principal Director at the George Institute for Global Health, also a Professor of Public Health at the University of New South Wales and Imperial College. Thank you. Thank you. This has been The Health Report. I'm Sarah Seggi. And I'm Tegan Taylor. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.